presence of God transforms lives and heals hearts. Let's learn today truths on how we can access His presence and release heaven into our daily lives. Welcome to Manifest His Presence with your host, Dr. Candace Smithyman. Hello, and it's Pastor Adam again, and I am uh, very happy to be able to to talk to everybody today about an issue and, and something that I think a lot of us aren't really sure how to deal with. I think this today will um, open some eyes and, and, and I believe and I'm hoping that it will encourage you to, to, to grow in your understanding of the word of God and what God has done for us. So uh, let's go to the Father and prayer before we get going. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity. We ask for your blessing over this. We we come to you humbly and ask again for your forgiveness of our sins. And thank you for your grace and mercy through what your son, Yeshua, Yamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, did for us so that we can have a relationship with you. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I titled this today, Bridge or Ditch. Now, you know, I think you'll understand why once we get into this. So, you know, a bridge, bridges, they're interesting things. I mean, they're like a pathway connecting two places, often, you know, over an obstacle, be it water or a ravine or a rough piece of land. In many cases, we would never be able to cross wide gaps in the terrain while traveling without the assistance of bridges. And so just as a structural bridge is needed to traverse natural ravines, Mental bridges are needed to traverse these soul-tie ravines that are in our lives. In other words, you know, when deep pain enters our life, it can cut into our emotions, cut into our faith, and into our ability to trust God. And sadly, the truth is, too often it creates a deep soul-tie ditch. Now, just so we're all on the same page, a ditch has steep sides that too often become a hiding place for many of us. It, it can become a place which we retreat for fear of being hurt again. We could call this place and these kind of situations the wounded ditch. And I think many of us have visited this wounded ditch. Or, or just maybe today you find yourself still living there, wandering around exploring what little this wounded ditch has to offer you. Now, the reality is this wounded ditch does, does offer a form of protection simply because our pain can be used to build a barrier to prevent relationships with others who could potentially cause us future pain. And this wounded ditch can also offer safety since few people are willing to come visit us in our place of discontentment. And in addition, the wounded ditch also offers us the needed motivation to exceed and excel at being self-sufficient and self-serving. In other words, we like to believe that this place of where the wounded ditch is offers us the freedom that we so desperately crave. In fact, it's like this ditch offers these glittering prizes, which frankly turn into endless compromises. And this type of lifestyle, 
produces an illusion of integrity and character. But ultimately, folks, the reality is this ditch fails to meet what our hearts and souls truly crave. What living in, living this way, like living in a ditch, what it does is prevent us from the blessed hope needed to fully live the full life, to live life abundantly. John chapter 10, verse 10, right? There never was a promise of ever feeling whole or at peace within ourselves or with God when we live in a ditch. See, every painful experience is glaring right at us if we live this way. It's as if those experiences are right at the door of our hearts, defying entry to anyone and everyone. Every inquiry to our soul is daring God to even try to make an attempt at being Lord of our life. And then our minds lie to us that we needed no one while our hearts are crying out for someone to hear our screams. So are you able to now maybe see the dilemma this kind of thinking produces? I mean, there's too many people that feel alone and abandoned. And if, if we could turn time back and speak to our younger self, I think we would have said, like, you're not alone, but pain has blinded your ability to see God. Stop running from the pain and look for the bridges connecting your deepest pain with God's, God's deep love for you. You know, and I so often hear parents say this to their children, but all the while they believe they're unworthy of receiving these same kinds of comforting words. Once again, I'm hoping and I'm praying we will listen to this plea to help each other and every one of you can get out of a ditch that you're in. I'll just use myself. For me, there was a day when I eventually stopped running and found myself living in a ditch of my past pain. God used many healing bridges to draw me back to him. Every, Every time, folks, I wanted to flee. God would hold my attention by revealing something about himself through the most unusual circumstances, be it people, be it events going on, or be it books. Each encounter became a mental bridge reconnecting me back to the heart of the Father and to a new place of restoration and wholeness. Here here is what I think is the hard part for each of us. I'm talking about myself here, though. See, I had to choose to renew my mind to what God's word said about issues and not stay obeying my feelings, what my feelings want to determine. In other words, there was an open door for healing, but I had to choose to get on that bridge to reconnect with the Father. Eventually, I started seeking out these mental bridges, and these bridges changed how I viewed God how I perceived my pain and created a desire to be finally free from emotional and soul-tied bondage. Each bridge revealed a different aspect of who God is and how he intersects with our pain. These bridges, you know, are are like, uh, they were healing all these places where I hurt. One unknown step at a time, if you will. Through his love, God places these healing bridges before each of us in the midst of our deepest pain. We can choose to cross over or we can choose to stay put or even walk away. But we have that choice. And if we choose honestly and courageously, we can walk into a life that is so much more fulfilling 
than living in the world of this pain and in these ditches. We can live this life more fulfilling of a God who loves us, who heals us and sets us free from the limitations of our wounds. And I know many of you have these pains that have entered your life. And, and, and you maybe have, you know, broken off the weed, but the root of that pain is still embedded in your soul. And I further know that God is available to heal your heart, if you will, entrust your pain to him. It's a faith. It's a, it's a step of faith, folks. But the question remains, will you take the first step in faith? And here, here's a beautiful, beautiful part of this. You do not have to see the whole bridge to take the first step. I've, I've personally come across many bridges in my life, and each one has led me closer to the place I call home. Each has led me to a deeper place of surrender and intimacy. Some of these bridges have been people. Some of the bridges have come in the form of books that I've read. Some of the bridges have been experiences. But regardless, each bridge has helped connect the places in my life where God appeared to be missing, to connect that part of my heart that needed God's touch. And I'm talking about these bridges over the gaping wounds of my past, these ditches of my past, each bringing me back to a full life of hope and expectation built upon a solid foundation of God's unending provision, protection, and acceptance. So let me bring in some scriptures now. Let's, let's bring Jesus into this. And I want to look at just one example of a bridge that Jesus faced. And I'm talking about the bridge that each one of us can understand of someone falsely accusing us. I, I think this is a very common thing in most of our lives so that it would be a good example to you. So if you got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to read Mark chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. So what we have here, we have, the Bible says, So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. Jesus says, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. All right, so what was going on is there were these teachers of the law, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and they, they were accusing Jesus of being Satan. And so they walk from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is like 100 miles, folks, with the accusation that Jesus is driving out demons by the power of the Satan. He's, he's, right, they're saying he's Satan, basically. He's a child of Satan. So how does Jesus respond to this criticism? And what, now, when we read, we study this, what can we learn from Jesus' example about our own reactions to people who don't like us or misinterpret our actions or our motives or say some not-so-nice things about us, right? Like, how do we react to this? Well, it appears as you study this that Jesus teaches us that if we make a response, it should be direct. So that's the first thing, right? The teachers of the law had bad-mouthed Jesus outside of his presence. 
But what I want you to get is Jesus did not do it that way that they had done it to him. He said, let's have a meeting. Let's meet face to face. Boy, does, does this thing bring back memories for me? As you know, too many times, especially in church circles, I mean, especially in church circles, criticism is passed on indirectly. Meaning, very often people talk behind other people's back. I mean, a, a, a nasty word for this is gossip. You know, phrases like, well, I've heard this about so-and-so and I cannot reveal the source, but it may very well be true. <laughs> Jesus, the teaching of Yeshua, teaches us that we are to go directly to another person rather than taking the long way around. I mean, Matthew chapter 18 specifically gets into this. So Jesus gives us an example here with the teacher's the, of the law. He didn't let them get away with criticism not expressed directly. So in other words, go directly to the one who is saying the things about you or about someone you respect or are aligned with. Okay, that's the first thing. Speak to them directly. Secondly, in other words, don't respond via social media. Hello, folks. That's wrong. That's wrong. Go to them directly whoever are saying things about you. Secondly, and that also means tr try to meet with them instead of calling them or texting them. Meet face to face. All right, I can't emphasize that enough. And it's not done enough. And it's gone, been done less and less. And with this newer generation that doesn't talk to anybody and only texts or communicates via social media, you see how, how hard this is gonna get? We have to show them, give them examples, okay? All right, secondly, Jesus dealt with the issue and didn't attack the character of the persons making the charge. See, rather than, you know, blasting their motives, Jesus treated their personhood with respect by dealing rationally with their accusation. I mean, Jesus could have easily written them off and sent them a message like, hey, you guys are the children of the Satan and won't even stoop. I won't even stoop to talk with you. Right? I mean, many Christians will use this, oh, well, I'm done throwing pearls before swine thing. No, 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 no. That, that doesn't come at the start. That comes way down the road if people continue to act that way. You don't use that one at the start, just so we're clear. See, what Jesus did is he drew these people into his presence and courageously engaged them. I mean, they came to him, so he said, come on, let's talk. He extended the opportunity of grace to those who liked him the least. It's as if initially Jesus is throwing the seed of reason all over the place. He's throwing it on the ground. If, if the ground, in other words, with this reasoning tactic he's using, if the ground had become good soil to receive his word, that, was, that would be well, that would be good. But on the flip side, or on the other hand, if the soil was hard, then the fault was with the soil and not the seed. When looking at Jesus's kingdom divided and house divided analogies, Jesus articulates a universal principle of relationships. Jesus basically says, marriages can't stand when two are divided, nor can a home endure when there is division. Or for instance, a church split cannot effectively reach its community for Christ. I mean, I'm sadly, it's so sad that this happens so often with churches. They're publicly be an issue that the whole community can see 
And it does, it just, it does great damage to the kingdom of God. It's the terrible example. So Jesus would not accept their charge that his power derived from the Satan, but he didn't deny the existence of Satan. Jesus clearly held that evil wasn't an impersonal force. It it does have a face. It's a person. Satan stands behind the control and forces of all that is wrong and terrible in this world. So how could the Satan be casting out the Satan when his goal is to cast in and not cast out? I mean, Satan wants to possess people, not deliver them. He wants to inhibit us, not vacate us. He wants to bind us. He doesn't want to set us free. So when someone falsely accuses us, can we be as gracious and direct in dealing with them as Jesus was with his his critics? Will we make a reasonable response or will we make an all-out attack on their character? Like, Like I've already mentioned, I dealt with this so often as a pastor, as an under-shepherd. And I really emphasize to people, you know, I want people to grow in maturity by dealing with these types of claims. I would encourage people to care front their accuser instead of confronting their accuser. I encourage them to be honest and share what they were feeling in the situation. But I also told them, once you're done, Once you shared your issue, you shared whatever was on your heart, then listen to them what they have to say. You know, because maybe when you do it this way, you might find that people might actually apologize right then and go, you know, I didn't realize that, but maybe not. But, you know, what I found, what was so encouraging and uplifting is when people actually followed the scriptural teachings on this issue, on how to deal with it, because if they did, you know what happened? There was always healing, there was always restoration, and there was always maturing for every single person involved. But sadly, too often, people would not partake of the scriptural guidance, and usually, you know what they do? They just leave the church instead of facing their fear, or they'd they just continue to, it would be, create a lot of work for me and the leadership to kind of stop, stop doing this. Let's deal with it. Let's have a meeting. And, and usually when they wouldn't follow our guidance, they would end up saying we were abusive or that we were doing something wrong and they'd just leave. We'd never see them again. Bottom line, don't give up. Even though you may hear some tough things. You might hear some things like this or have, or maybe you've said this, things like, you know, talking about some people going, well, he used to be a pastor, but the people in the church was so mean, undercutting him, criticizing him, backbiting him, slandering him, and then kicked him out that it ruined him forever. He vows he'll never enter a church again. Or, or how about this? If this is how God's churches are, I want nothing to do with a church. It makes me wonder if the Lord even cares. I mean, Variations on these kinds of sad themes are endless, but the results, while tragic, are needless. Some of these wounded warriors have given up on the Lord and his church. No one should ever quit Jesus when God's people mistreat them. The Lord told us to expect this both. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, Jesus is speaking and he says, the student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. 
If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more than the members of his household? Jesus is basically saying, I, I, I've, he's being called Beelzebub, and you don't expect to be called that? <laughs> the Lord, I mean, just a, a quick reminder, Jesus was crucified by the religious people that were convinced they were doing God's work. So what would it take for us to walk away from the Lord's work and cause us to turn our back on him? How badly would they have to treat you to make you give up on Jesus? That's not theoretical, nor is the question rhetorical. It's a real issue. It's a question and a real issue each one of us should face and answer. I have heard people who were mistreated by a sibling and who as a result wrote off the entire family. So how is it that someone mistreated by a church can walk away from the Lord Jesus? I've heard too many times people say, I'm not leaving the Lord just as church. Folks, that's the same difference, my friend. No. Show me anyone in scripture who managed to separate Jesus from his body. Jesus said more than once, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Folks, to love Jesus does not mean getting all goosey bumpy about him, but obeying him. It's called obedience. So often, folks, that's the Lord's love language. You want to know what God's love is? It's obedience. I mean, in the book of Job, God and the Satan were discussing this very issue. You know, what would it take for a champion of the Lord to desert him? Job, right? Is, Satan says, Job is faithful to you because you take such good care of him, right? The loss of everything dear to Job would do the trick, said Satan. He said, Satan said, take it all away from him and he will curse you to your face. Well, when that wasn't proven, and, right? Satan then said, well, let him think he's losing his life. I mean, nothing greater to us than losing our lives, right? But in all this, Job held on. Uh, now, was it rough? Oh, gosh, yes. Job says, even though God slay me, yet I will trust God. That's the kind of faithfulness that honors God, that blesses people and will shine like diamonds for eternity. So what would it take for us to stop going to church, quick reading our Bibles and put a stop to our prayers? And I'm sorry to say, the report's in, the data's in, it doesn't take much. It just takes a little opposition, a little harassment, some betrayals, and one would think we're going through the Holocaust. Why me, oh Lord? Why me? I'm telling you, the preachers of the word of God got to lose their Pollyanna expectation that serving Jesus was meant to be easy. That churches or the Christian community is always going to do the right thing. And gosh, can we just stop teaching and listening to people saying that if God loved us, he would give us what we pray for every time. God's people need to grow up and stop complaining. I mean, you know, at the end of their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas decided to retrace their steps and return to the Christians they birthed and the churches that they started. And they were saying, like, let's encourage them in the Lord. Let's tell them that it's through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom. This is Acts chapter 14. Much tribulation. Well, in other words, expect it, folks. And if you're not getting any, then I guess you're not really doing it right or you're not participating in much. The problem for most of us is that we expect it from the world, but not from the house of God. 
The crowd that welcomed Jesus into the city on a Sunday with cries of Hosanna, we call it Palm Sunday, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Must have been largely the same bunch calling out crucify him by the end of the week. (laughs) In a few days. In Paul's first missionary journey, the citizens in Lystra were so impressed by the miracle of healing a crippled man that they were ready to worship him and Barnabas as gods. But not soon after, shortly after, right, when unbelievers from the previous city they were in, Iconium, they arrived in, in Lystra, right, to slander Paul and Barnabas. And so this very same crowd then turned and they got stones in their hand to stone Paul. <laughs> so what's the lesson, people? Pray and ask God to remind us to keep our faith in Jesus, not in the Lord's creation called people, because the flock is the Lord's. The flock are God's children. In other words, keep our eye on the Lord Jesus instead of some of these people. God is both the author and finisher of our salvation, which is to say he started it and he will end it in his own time and in his way. So keep trusting him. Pray God will help you to get past the mistreatment at the hands of his people. (laughs) Ask the Lord to use this wounded valley to reveal things in your life. This is something that Lord specializes in. And you may finally be learning what it means to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Don't miss this privilege because, folks, it it is not accepted by everyone. Let your sufferings be an offering of love to the one who redeemed you from sin and called you into his service. I mean, Paul's writing to the Philippian church. He tells them in Philippians 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Oh, man, we we must not quit. We have been given an incredible promise. Jesus says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. That's Revelation 2, verse 10. Here's how Paul puts it in the second letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 1. He says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. God, just think about your life. God has shown you so much mercy so many times. We can't number it. God has called us into his family to serve. Mercy and serving. Folks, that's quite a recipe. He's been so good to us. 
He hasn't dealt with us according to our sins, and he hasn't rewarded us according to our inequities. That's his mercy. And having called us into his service, he gave us spiritual gifts to enable us to do the work of the ministry. That's your ministry. And we're going to stand before him and give an account. I urge, I just so encourage you and urge you to claim this promise from that very same letter Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far, far outweighs them all. As Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I end with that from Romans 8, verse 18. God bless you all, and I hope this encourages you. Thank you for joining Dr. Candice for today's podcast. For more resources and weekly prophetic words direct in your email box, go to our website at www.candicesmithyman.com, Facebook at Candice Smithyman, or Instagram at Candice Smithyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps the show reach more people and spread the gospel.